Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Department of Political Science. My name is Adam Myers, Associate Professor of Political Science and frequent guest on this podcast. For this episode, however, we're turning, to the, we're turning the proverbial tables around. I'm serving as the host, while the podcast's usual host, Professor Bill Hudson, is today's guest. The reason for this temporary switch is that budgets and fiscal policy are the big issues of the moment in American national politics. Congressional Democrats are internally divided as they struggle to pass their core agenda item, a massive spending program allocating billions of dollars for education, healthcare, and climate action. For their part, Republicans are united in opposition, arguing that the Democrats' spending plans will put America on a path to fiscal ruin. Meanwhile, just this morning, and we should say that we're recording this podcast on October 7th, congressional leaders arrived at a deal that would raise the nation's debt limit by $480 billion, thereby avoiding the crisis that would have ensued shortly had the U.S. hit the so-called debt ceiling. However, the new limit that Congress will set will likely be hit in just two months, so we're almost assured another high-stakes fight over the so-called debt ceiling in the not-so-distant future. So there's no one at Providence College more qualified to talk about all these developments and put them in their proper perspective than Professor Hudson. His book, A Citizen's Guide to Federal Deficits and Debt, published by Routledge, is, in my view, the clearest, most useful introduction to the politics of American fiscal policy around. That said, nearly a decade has passed since the book was published, and I was hoping Bill would share with us his insights concerning what has and has not changed in America's fiscal politics since President Obama's first term, a period in which budgetary politics regularly dominated the news, and which was the focus of Professor Hudson's book. As I've alluded to already, our focus in this episode will be primarily on fiscal issues and less on the substantive programs that Democrats are trying to fund though we will obviously be mentioning those programs in our conversation. So, Bill, welcome to your own podcast. Thank you, Adam. Although, let me point out that it's not my podcast. It's the Political Science Department podcast. I'm simply the host. And we certainly could add a co-host, Adam, uh, if you'd (laughs) like to do so in the future. So, well, let's, this this will be your tryout. We'll see how you do as as co-host, and maybe we can... uh, have you do more podcasts in the future. Uh, well, thank you for correcting me, Bill. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely right. This is the department's podcast, but you do such a fantastic job. Um, I, don't think you, I don't think you need a co-host, but I appreciate your kind words. Uh, <laughs> in any case, um, let's begin uh, by demystifying some of the terms that regularly feature in this country's fiscal policy debates. So, uh, Bill, can you briefly explain, uh, number one, what deficits are? Like, we hear this term all the time, um, and I'm not sure most Americans know exactly what it means. So what are deficits? What's the difference between deficits and the national debt? Um, And then maybe talk a little bit about current trends in regards to both, both annual deficits and the national debt. How long have we been running deficits in this country? How large is our national debt? That sort of thing. Okay, Uh, that's a tall order. And you're right, uh, there is a lot of confusion over what's a deficit, what's the debt. So deficits are simply the difference between the government taxing and spending in a given year. 
Okay, and in most years, uh, the federal government spends more than it receives in tax revenue, and that produces a deficit. Occasionally, there are times when, in fact, tax revenues exceed spending. That's occurred occasionally in American history. In fact, most recently, uh, in the end of the 1990s, at the end of Clinton's uh, second term, uh, there were two, I believe, at least two years, maybe three, when uh, the government was in surplus. And we can talk more about that uh, in, a, in a minute. Uh, I'll have some things to say about what happens when the government's in surplus. But a deficit is simply uh, the government spending uh, minus uh, the tax revenue in a single year. The debt is the accumulation of those deficits over time. That is, the debt is the, uh, well, in a formal sense, the debt is simply the uh, number of US Treasury bonds that have been issued uh, by the Treasury. Okay. Now, that's an important concept to keep in mind that when we talk about the debt, what we're talking about is the is people owning treasury interest-bearing treasury bonds. Okay, that's what the debt is. And the fact is that most of those interest-carrying treasury bonds are owned by Americans. So, Wait, really? Because I think there's a this is interesting. I think there's a common misconception that that our debt is mostly owned by the Chinese and the Japanese right. and so forth. That's, and that's that is myth. not true. That's a myth. That's a big myth. Uh, foreign governments do own some of the debt. They do invest in U.S. treasuries because U.S. treasuries are uh, such good investments. They're huh. secure. Uh, whether you're an American citizen or a foreign government or a foreign citizen, you buy a treasury and you're, you can be confident uh, that you're going to get your, your money's going to be safe. Plus, you'll earn some interest along the way. Okay, uh, but that's that. And, and 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 in fact, uh, the the foreign held debt is is a uh, the, the uh, majority of the debt is held by either American citizens or American uh, corporations, American entities of some kind. You know, like Providence College can buy treasury bonds. Okay, as part of its endowment. All right, so it's it, it's a myth that foreigners own the debt. So we don't owe, you know, the rest of the world. Uh, all this money. Uh, and if we did, uh, it, you know, the, the, the debt held by foreigners, you know, could be paid off at, at any time. The federal government decide, well, we're not going to, uh, we're going to, you know, buy back those bonds, you know, from the Chinese. Uh, so, and I don't want to go into the technical details. Uh, you really need to be a, you need an economist here to, to go into it. But, but actually the the, the Chinese own some of our bonds because uh, they have a trade surplus with us. That is, we import more Chinese goods than we sell to China. Uh, and that extra you know, surplus uh, ends up being carried in uh, uh, these U.S. bonds. Uh, but right. Well, I, th that complicates things too more. The, the main thing to keep in mind is that the U.S. debt is the U.S. Treasury bonds that are out there that have been purchased by individuals or organizations. Right. And so, and so you said that the treasury bonds are considered an ultra safe investment. Right. And, and the reason for that is because it, it's sort of based on 
um, the U.S.'s performance in the past. We've never defaulted on our debt. The full faith and credit of the United States government. The federal government has never defaulted on its debt. It's always paid. If anybody who's, when a treasury bond matures, they've, they've always been able to come and, and ask for their money plus their interest, and they got it. Right. That's, that's why this debt ceiling thing is uh, so uh, 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 terrifying. Uh, because the debt ceiling, if the debt ceiling were not raised, uh, the the Treasury uh, would be in, in a situation where it couldn't issue any new Treasury bonds. Though it could issue Treasury bonds uh, to uh, to redeem those that come due. So it's not clear that Treasury bonds would be uh, affected so much. The bigger problem is that if you didn't reach the debt limit, uh, the government would not be able to spend money on uh, basic operations. It couldn't. Uh, it, it might have to stop. Have to cut Social Security payments, or veterans' benefits, or Medicare couldn't reimburse hospitals for Medicare, et cetera, et cetera. And right. let me just, since we mentioned the debt limit, let me just say something about that. <clears throat> so the debt limit is this kind of artificial rule uh, in which the uh, law says that uh, before the Treasury can issue debt, uh, it, it, the Treasury cannot issue debt beyond an amount set in this debt limit. Now, the, the idea of a debt limit uh, has only existed since 1917. Uh, prior to that time, whenever the government uh, issued bonds, okay, borrowed money, the Congress had to pass a specific piece of legislation saying we're going to issue bonds. And in 1917, when we entered into World War I, it was necessary, as always happens in war, to borrow a lot of money. And it was very inconvenient for the Treasury to have to go to Congress you know, every week asking for a new piece of legislation to issue bonds. And so Congress came up with this idea of a debt limit that said, okay, uh, you can issue all the bonds you want uh, up to a certain amount. Uh, and that was basically the start of it. Uh, the debt limit thing was modified a little in the 1930s. Um, that's really not important. But, but the point is, it's simply an artificial ceiling that if reached, if the debt reaches that level, the Congress has to increase the debt limit so that the Treasury can continue borrowing money or issuing you know, Treasury bonds. Right. So, so that actually, um, that sort of leads to kind of what I wanted to ask next, which is that sort of when you look at the issue of the debt or annual deficits um, across the wide swath of American history, um, then it does seem as though this kind of habit that the federal government has gotten into of running deficits annually, year after year after year. That's a relatively new thing, isn't it? Um, in other words, certainly in the 19th century, um, there weren't annual deficits in, uh, of this magnitude. Um, there was during World War II, um, but this sort of situation in which the federal government annually has a big deficit, in which the amount it spends greatly um, exceeds the amount it takes in in revenue. This is something that goes back to what, the 1970s? Is that about right? Well, I, 
I don't think you're right to say that deficits are simply something new. In fact, they've always been pretty common. You're right, in the 19th century, there were years in which uh, the budget was in surplus, okay? But in the 20th century, uh, basically deficits has been quite common. There have been years when there have been surpluses. I mentioned the late 90s. There are some years in the 1950s, a couple of years where there's surpluses. But particularly if you go back to, to the uh, 1940s, since the 1940s, in almost every year, there's been a deficit, okay? Uh, it's not like, you know, uh, somehow deficit spending only began three decades ago. Uh, now, with the exception of World War II, uh, when, like in World War I, there was a need to borrow lots of money, uh, and there were huge deficits uh, during the war years to pay for the war. Uh, in the subsequent years, uh, you're right, the deficits tended to be, uh, you know, fairly, fairly modest. And they tended to follow a pattern uh, that kind of coincided with the business cycle. Uh, that is, uh, in almost every year there was, a, there was a deficit, the deficits would get bigger uh, in times of economic downturn, in say a recession. Okay, what happens in a recession? In a recession, uh, there is, a, uh, th that's an economic downturn, more unemployment, uh, businesses aren't able to sell their goods. Uh, that means there's a decline in tax revenue. There's also an increase in government spending in recessions because of uh, what economists call automatic stabilizers. That is, there are certain programs that automatically kick in when there is a recession. For example, unemployment compensation. If there's more people unemployed, more money is spent on unemployment compensation compensation, uh, welfare spending, food stamps, uh, even something like social security spending goes up because in a recession, uh, people who have reached maybe the minimal social security retirement age of 62, uh, if they lose their job, will opt to take social security. So social security has to spend more. So you have a lot of increased government spending uh, in a recession. And so, you know, for most of the post-war period, uh, you can see a pattern where deficits get larger in recessions. And then when the economy is doing well, uh, the deficits are small. And then on a couple of occasions, you had surpluses. But again, that's most, most years, there's, even when the economy is doing well, there's at least a small deficit. Okay, great. So thank you for all, for all of that. That was okay. very helpful. Now, do we want to talk about when this changed? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about when this all changed. That's a great idea. So in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected president. And he was elected on a platform uh, to radically cut taxes. Okay, they were called supply-side tax cuts. Uh, the idea was that if you cut taxes dramatically, uh, those tax cuts would stimulate uh, people to work harder because less of their paychecks were being taxed away. It would encourage more businesses to invest because less of their profits would be taxed away. And advocates of this, like uh, the chief advocate was an economist named Arthur Laffer. Uh, he said, well, you can cut taxes dramatically. And in fact, it's not going to increase deficits because 
of this supply side effect. That is people working harder, uh, people investing more, uh, actually more tax revenue would come to the government. And so a massive tax cut was enacted in 1981. Uh, this was, by the way, in the middle of a, a rather big recession. In fact, the biggest recession we had experienced since the 1930s at the time. And uh, in fact, the tax cut uh, did have the effect of stimulating the economy. Uh, it, whatever you, uh, but it also caused deficits, okay? So you had increased deficits in the early 80s uh, because tax revenues were down. The tax cuts even made them worse, okay? That did stimulate the economy and did promote by 1984, there was a, a, a modest economic recovery. But in spite of that recovery, uh, the federal government still had high deficits uh, because it simply was not collecting enough tax revenue. Okay. And in fact, the Reagan administration, also, though it also had promised to cut spending significantly, uh, it did do some modest spending cuts, <clears throat> but not any major cuts in major government programs. It didn't touch Medicare or Social Security, for example, in a major way. Uh, and, and even other government spending was not. And there was a big defense spending increase. All right, so spending <clears throat> didn't go down. And you had a now, by the mid-1980s, what we call structural deficits. <coughs> Excuse me. Not deficits that were the result of uh, simply a recession or an economic downturn, but recession deficits that persisted at a high level, even though the economy was doing well. Uh, and that's really when I think the big focus on debt and deficits really began. Because at that point, you had a lot of politicians talking about, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, we have this growing debt. You know, even though the economy is chugging along pretty effectively, it's not reducing the debt. Uh, and so you got a lot of uh, talk about uh, somehow reducing it. And there were. And so that realization that the country had this kind of structural deficit problem that sort of kicked in in the late 80s, early 90s. Is that about right? Or would you? Right, right. Late, I late 80s, I think. Okay. And it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it brought about a period of what I would call austerity, though that was a word that only was used commonly after the financial crisis in 2008. But essentially, uh, the structural uh, deficits created a political context where there was a Anytime anyone proposed any new spending, uh, th that spending could be attacked on saying that's only going to worsen our deficit problem or our debt problem. Right, right. And uh, at the same time, uh, there was a there was a there was a, a decision, political decision by the Republican Party, at least after 1992. Uh, in fact, a Reagan administration did raise taxes modestly at the end of the 1980s. And then famously, uh, George Bush uh, supported an increase in taxes in 1992. Uh, but after that, uh, Bush was attacked by his own party for, in fact, uh, uh, violating a promise he had made during the 1988 campaign uh, 
that read my read lips, my lips, no I new will taxes. Not raise taxes, but he did raise taxes, and so he was lambasted for it. And <clears throat> the Republicans uh, then essentially said, uh, "We're not going to support any tax increases ever again, and we're going to advocate for further tax reductions." You know, the deficit land. We're not we're not going to solve the deficit problem, uh, as Mitch McConnell later on would say. The deficit is a spending problem, not a tax. Right. But that and that's in the eye of the beholder. Right. You can look at it as either a spending problem or a taxing problem. And in fact, I remember, you know, in the early 2000s that this whole issue of deficits and the debt was actually uh, used by Democrats um, in opposition to Bush's tax cuts. In other words, you know, blue dog Democrats, more conservative Democrats, they criticized Bush's tax cuts by saying they would add to the deficit and eventually to the debt. And the Democrats did it again in 1917 when Trump proposed, you know, right. major deficit. Right, right, right. Uh, so, the, so, so this uh, issue of deficits and debt can be weaponized by either side. Right, right, and 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 we have to keep in mind that deficits are created not by spending alone or taxing alone, but by both. Okay. Right, uh, and so uh, that's that's reality. Uh, but I think the political reality, you know, in the 1990s is this big pressure. Uh, it affects the Clinton administration. Uh, when Clinton ran for office, he ran on a platform of rather significant expansion of government spending. But once he came in office, uh, that went out the window, uh, basically. Uh, uh, his, his initial budget, which included a, some modest increases in spending, uh, barely passed. It, it passed only uh, with the vote of Vice President Al Gore. Okay, uh, it, it was a, a reconciliation bill. Okay, that didn't couldn't be filibustered, but only passed with Democratic votes. <clears throat> and so, and then in 1994, the Republicans retake the House. Okay, and, and to remind our listeners, this is a monumental uh, historical event because the Republicans had not controlled the House since the 1950s. All right. So it had been, you know, several decades that the Democrats had a majority in the House, and actually both houses of Congress, most of them. And now the Republicans recapture the House. Uh, they recaptured on a sort of austerity platform, cut government spending, no new taxes. Uh, Clinton was now in a vice. And what we saw then uh, in the last two years of Clinton's first term and his whole second term, is that Clinton agreed to essentially an austerity program of holding down spending, uh, not uh, cutting taxes, but no huge tax increases. Uh, and that had the effect of creating the surplus actually at, at the end of the 90s. Okay. Right. Okay, um, so let's, let's focus maybe just briefly on the time period that was the focus of your book, that very interesting time period between 2009 and 2013, President Obama's first term, coming off of the Great Recession. That moment was unique, at least in my lifetime, in the extent to which these issues of deficits and the debt just dominated the headlines regularly. So can you just briefly discuss what was going on in that period and why we heard so much about this topic then? Okay, um, well, the, the, the immediate reason was the, the recession. Okay, the financial crisis 
and the recession of 2009, which was actually later 2008 and nine, which now was the biggest recession since the Great Depression. A massive economic downturn. And as a result, deficits increased just from that fact alone. All right. And people noted that. But let me point out, and also in response to that, you got actions, you know, both by the Federal Reserve uh, in the so-called TARP program that essentially, uh, essentially paid out a lot of money to the banks to stabilize the, the banking system. And then uh, Obama, as, you know, typically this would be the case, you know, in a recession, uh, proposed a fiscal program of increasing spending, a stimulus program to stimulate the economy with increased government spending, which itself, of course, contributed uh, to higher deficits. Right? Uh, now, I have to point out that this, these events happen uh, after several decades now of a lot of people calling attention to deficits and debt. Okay, that there is right. I I remember hearing about the deficits and the debt when I was a kid in the 1990s. Right, um, and even, but not to the extent that I heard about it during that. Right, and even in the early 2000s, I mean, you had, you know, uh, uh, organizations uh, like uh, Fix the Debt or uh, uh, I O U S A was a film that came out in 2008 before the Great Recession about right. the dangers of the higher debt. Okay, and many of these efforts were funded by a fellow named Pete Peterson, uh, who was a former Commerce Secretary under President Nixon. Uh, he then got into finance. He was uh, president of Lehman Brothers in the, in the 70s. And then he formed his own uh, private equity firm uh, called the Blackstone Group You know, in the early 1980s. Uh, so he's a big finance guy. Uh, and Beginning in the 1980s, he began uh, writing articles and books uh, talking about the dangers of debt. He tended to focus on uh, what are sometimes called entitlements, the ex future expenses of Social Security and Medicare. Uh, but he was basically a sort of anti-debt uh, propagandist uh, during this whole period. And, and, and he had a lot of money. You know, he, had, he was a billionaire and he invested. In fact, he retired from Blackstone Group in 2008 and pledged to invest half of his fortune in organizations to fight the debt. And he'd already funded, a, there was a Concord Coalition formed in 1992. Uh, and you know, these organizations tend to portray themselves as sort of moderate middle, middle road. You know, they, they were against big tax cuts, but also big spending increases. They wanted to be, they focused on, we got to balance you know, the budget. So, so there was this sort of atmosphere, this preparation, I would say, out there. And then when the, the, the recession 2008 hits and you have understandably higher deficits, uh, suddenly uh, there's a lot of talk about this is a serious crisis. We've got to do something about it. And you got a major push for austerity. And this didn't only happen in the United States. Something similar happened in, in Europe. In fact, the Europeans, to some extent, to a greater extent, they in fact did not stimulate 
The European Union did not stimulate the economy uh, in the face of the recession the way the Obama administration had. Uh, and so let me ask you this. Let me stop you there because there's something that's always confused me about this particular time period. This kind of push for austerity, austerity that emerges right after the Great Recession, right in the wake of it, um, it flies directly in the face of basic Keynesian economics, right? The idea that when there's a big economic downturn, that is actually the time to deficit spend. And so what was going on there? Did people just, at, at that point, were people just dismissing Keynes and his ideas completely? Uh, you know, because as, you know, this was the dominant approach to public finance, right? From the 1930s all the way to the 1980s. And even, if, even after the 1980s, it didn't completely disappear. Some people say that supply-side economics, which you referred to, is a form of Keynesian, a kind of a bizarre form of Keynesian economics. So what was going on there exactly in terms of people's thinking about this topic? Well, in the 1980s, there was a revival of an, of, uh, an alternative to Keynesianism, which was represented by the work of Frederick Hayek, you know, one of the Austrian school, uh, which argued that, and, and Milton Friedman was uh, to some extent a part of that, though Friedman's views were, weren't always orthodox, weren't orthodox Austrian school. Uh, but uh, the, their idea was that in fact, uh, responding to recessions with greater spending uh, only created more trouble in the future. Okay, that you would uh, create a bunch of uh, increased deficit and debt, uh, which would result in inflationary pressures. And there would be huge inflation, uh, which would wipe out any kind of economic gain. And it would, and the high inflation would produce even a, a new further economic downturn. And so would you say that that was the that had become the dominant view of the Republican Party or of, of the conservative movement by 2009, 2010? In other words, that in the face of a big economic downturn, the best thing for government to do was just kind of nothing. Right. Because right. government actions would have adverse consequences. Is that right. basically where they would say, uh, how can we add uh, spend more money when we have such a big debt? Okay? Right. And there was a lot of talk about this stimulus was going to create a round of inflation. Uh, the higher debt was going to create a round of inflation. Uh, and that was the, uh, uh, the, 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 big, the, big, the big call. But basically these ideas, you know, uh, just provide a kind of a uh, intellectual framework for what I think was their political agenda, uh, which was to uh, argue against what the Democrats were doing and the Obama administration was doing. Okay, and, and, and to get people excited about the dangers of the debt, uh, and as a result, uh, throw the Democrats out. And, and this political strategy worked. Yes. Because in 2010, you, you, in, uh, right in 2000, early 2009, you've got this Tea Party phenomenon, uh, this, these organizations all around the country that form under the rubric of the Tea Party. And, and, uh, the main issue that they were concerned with was growing government spending. Uh, they also were, uh, were motivated by opposition to uh, the Affordable Care Act. Right. Okay. But, but, if you, but studies have shown, uh, if you look at 
uh, what they talked about the most, um, it was this idea of debt. Uh, somehow, somehow the Democrats were going to, you know, rob our children of their uh, of their of their lives. They're going to go into debt, uh, and and it, in fact, uh, stimulated a lot of uh, enthusiasm on part of the Republicans. And in 2010, uh, the Republicans retake the House of Representatives. Right. And that's when we uh, get into this period of brinksmanship over the debt ceiling for the first time. Yeah. And this this is really the first time in 2011 that, you know, prior to 2011, the 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 debt ceiling had been lifted 80 times with very little controversy. Occasionally, members of Congress would vote against raising the debt ceiling, but they only did it in the context where they knew that a majority of Congress was, in fact, going to pass it. Okay, so you had this moment in, I think it was 2004, uh, or I think it was 2004, where a number of uh, Democratic senators, uh, like Joe Biden and and Barack Obama, uh, voted against uh, raising the debt ceiling when Bush was president. You know, prote- actually, it was a protest against the uh, Iraq War. It's been it. uh, but they knew that, in fact, they weren't that they were going to be in the minority. Okay, so it was always kind of pro forma to raise the debt limit. And then 2011 comes along, and the and the, this and this was a promoted primarily by the Tea Party Republicans. Those Republican members of Congress who had had been elected with Tea Party support in, in, in 2010. In 2011, we're saying, uh, we're going to use this debt limit bill as leverage to force the Obama administration to cut spending. Right. Okay. And so there's a showdown, uh, goes right up to the wire, uh, and eventually a uh, compromise is reached uh, where... Uh, they agree to uh, sequestration. Well, it's it's a complicated process. I won't go into the details, but basically the Obama administration agreed to some, to a program of austerity, essentially holding down government spending in exchange for the Republicans raising the debt. Right. Uh, and, and also there were there was there were also period issues around shutting down the government. Uh, again, the Republicans would refuse to uh, pass spending to keep the government open. Uh, there, there were those kinds of things. And eventually, they came up, they, they came up with the uh, Budget Control Act of 2011, uh, which uh, which initially said there's going to be this commission, and this commission is going to be bipartisan. And by the end of uh, 2012, uh, the commission is going to come up with a plan, a grand compromise between the parties uh, to control the debt. And so this commission met, uh, but they ended up not being able to agree. agree. Right. At least the, the, uh, the they came up with it with a plan, but the Republican members of the commission, or at least enough of the Republican members to, to prevent uh, the plan taking effect, refused to agree to it. And with the failure of that, 
the the legislation, the Budget Control Act of 2011 said, if the commission fails to come up with agreement, then the uh, federal government is going to automatically uh, every year have to cut discretionary spending across the board, both military spending and and discretionary spending is the money that Congress spends every year for things like running the FBI, running uh, the general government operations and right. the military, that that spending is going to cut 10% a year. So that's a program of cutting spending. Okay. And it was mandatory. Uh, and so we had this period for several years of these are called sequestrations. Right. Okay. And the effect of this was to implement austerity at a time when the economy was barely recovering. Okay. After 2010, the Obama stimulus had, in fact, stimulated the economy somewhat. The economy was coming back. Uh, that stimulus, by the way, was it was a, a little over $700 billion. Most economists said it was really about half what it needed to be to, in fact, uh, stimulate the economy to bring it out of the recession. That is, you want a stimulus as, in, in theory, you want a stimulus as big as the loss of, of gross domestic product created by the recession. And the Obama stimulus is about half of what most economists would say was needed, uh, but, but it did have some effect. And so the economy is beginning to recover, but then you get this austerity program of holding back spending, okay? And that made the, the, the recovery very slow and very difficult. And so it wasn't until uh, it, it took take almost 10 years for the GDP to get back up to where it had been, you know, prior to the Great Recession. You know, uh, and looking back, most economists say uh, the reason was because uh, the, the government didn't stick up enough. Though, well, that well, just to be fair, not all economists agree with that. Some economists reject the idea that that uh, government spending can stimulate the economy to such a to such a great degree, unless it's really really large. In which I case, think, I think the consensus view of most economists is that is that in an economic downturn, there are Keynesians who need to to, to stimulate the economy fiscally. Uh, uh, during this period. The, the most of the economic stimulus was coming from the Federal Reserve, which was essentially pumping money into the economy right. by buying treasury, but something they called quantitative easing. Uh, right. And, um, and that, but that only went so far. But, but the point is that, and <clears throat> the, the inflation monster never materialized. And that was the other thing, that during this period, there was all this talk that all the spending and by the way, the, you know, the debt is still going up, right? You know, the, with the economy recovering so slowly, you know, it's not bringing in enough tax revenue to really, you know, bring those deficits down that much in spite right. of the restraint on spending. Uh, and so you get, you know, in, in increasing debt. It, it's not, incre you know, it, it's not increasing as rapidly as it had been, you know, after, you know, in 2000. Nine in 2010, but it's still going up. And, uh, you know, and, you know, someone kind of say this is, this is really great, a great loss. Uh, uh, one uh, economist with one of the Federal Reserve Banks 
wrote a paper where he uh, said that the <clears throat> that the that the loss to the economy of not stimulating it enough uh, between say 2010 and uh, 2017 was such that uh, Americans if, on a per capita basis lost about $70,000 over that period of time. Okay, so, so that, they, that we could have been much better off had there been more spending. Okay, um, great. So I suppose we should move to what's going on now. Um, and what I was hoping to do is, first of all, I wanted to discuss how the political dynamics now are different from what they were in the period uh, that you wrote about in your book. So first of all, let's start with the Democrats. During that 2009 to 2013 period, it seems to me, based on my recollection, the Democrats had a, I guess, sort of a somewhat hesitant approach to uh, fiscal stimulus. There was a kind of a widespread agreement among Democrats that stimulus did need to happen in the wake of the Great Recession, but they were there were Democrats who were reluctant to go especially large. Um, uh, that, that included President Obama. That included President Obama. That's President right. President Obama, who was very reluctant to spend. Okay, and it was the Obama, you know, it was the Obama administration, the White House, were the ones that decided to limit the size of the stimulus. So clearly, in comparison to that era, Democrats today are much, much more willing to spend large quantities of money um, in the form of stimulus. Obviously, there are the mansions and the cinemas of the world, but those folks are, are even though they're, they're significant because they hold the key to, to getting a majority to pass these bills. But within the party, um, in Congress at least, they're a small minority. It seems like Democrats um, are much less worried about deficits today um, than they used to be. Is that, a, is that an accurate reading? Yeah, not, but I would say it's also true of Republicans. Okay, because well, I was going to get to Republicans. All right, well, <laughs> uh, Democrats are, are much less concerned. Partly, I think it's because of reflection on the post two thousand and eight period, where right. you know there was very slow economic growth, and I, I think most Democratic politicians, they, I think they're listening to those economists to say, well, we didn't stimulate enough, and the inflation monster never appeared, okay? Inflation remained low. In fact, the Federal Reserve through this period was concerned that we were gonna go into a deflation, okay? The, the inflation wasn't higher in, high enough. Uh, and, and the Federal Reserve you know, cut interest rates you know, throughout the period uh, to try to get inflation up to their 2% target. And they couldn't make it. You know, we had right. year after year where inflation was you know, one percent, one point five. There was so there's there were all these deflation concerns, uh, and then you know so the the austerity crowd, um, th their predictions all turned out wrong. You know? Right, uh, and and that reality I think affected uh, actually politicians across the board, not only in the United States but in Europe as well. Okay, where the austerity. Uh, fever was even hotter than in the United States. Um, but the, 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 the experience uh, caused people to, to rethink uh, how much uh, 
spending could be possible and the fears of inflation uh, you know, diminished. Uh, and, and then, uh, okay, so you want to talk about the Republicans? Yeah, I mean, so again, as, as I, well, as I recall, just as kind of a preface to all of this, it, it seems to me um, that there's been a major shift, at least in, in the rhetoric uh, coming out of Republic, of the leaders of the Republican Party in Congress right now, if not in the actual policy positions, right? Because if you think back to that 2009-2013 period, um, the leaders of the Republican Party in Congress were folks like Paul Ryan. Um, who regularly talked about the importance of cutting spending, um, cutting entitlements so as to avert a U.S. debt crisis. We don't hear that kind of rhetoric anymore. Well, first of all, you don't hear talk about an American debt crisis. We do hear warnings about inflation. But that kind of debt crisis language is largely absent from Republican rhetoric today. And we don't hear talk about uh, entitlement reform in the way we used to. So, so what changed among Republicans? Donald Trump, the debt language is, is coming back. We'll get to that in a minute. But certainly the main impact was Donald Trump's victory in 2016. Uh, he came into office and uh, the Paul Ryans of the world were pleased because they were able to um, enact a huge tax cut. A tax cut that benefited their wealthy donors primarily. Uh, and uh, Trump's victory made that possible. Uh, they, they controlled both houses of Congress and Trump signed off on a huge, you know, uh, I think it's 1.9, 1.7 trillion tax cut, uh, you know, which raised the, increased the deficit, raised the debt. Uh, suddenly their, you know, their, their concerns for debt and uh, went out the window when they had the opportunity to, uh, to you know, pass tax cuts. So they stopped talking about it when they were in control of government. The other thing is that the, I think the decline in talk about entitlements uh, came about because of uh, Trump when he was running for office, came out strongly in defense right. of social security and Medicare, didn't want to alienate uh, you know, middle-class Americans who received those benefits. And I think the Republican party, like, once again, uh, got nervous about uh, any talk about uh, cutbacks in in those popular programs? Okay, right. Uh, just a historical note: the Republicans had burned were burned badly in two thousand and four. Uh, actually, it was two thousand five. Two thousand six. When when, yeah, yeah. when when George Bush tried to introduce a reform, so essentially a partial privatization of Social Security, right. and it went down the tubes uh, with many Republicans voting against it because it was so unpopular. You know, again. Right. Social Security is the, you know, the, the, the untouchable. Yeah, it's the fifth rail of America. Fifth rail of, yeah. of, of American politics. You know, you, you touch and you die, Ronald Reagan said. And I think that sentiment has come came back to the Republicans. Uh, they didn't want to, uh, to, to, to go into that. And so when they were in power, they were not going to talk about, they were interested in cutting taxes. And they also were interested in increasing spending on things that they favored, like more military spending. Uh, more spending to build a border wall, okay? more spending on homeland security, which went up significantly uh, under Trump. Uh, so, so they were not when Trump was president. Um, and I think, you know, once, you know, last year when the Democrats uh, gained control of the government, 
uh, the Republicans were not, uh, you know, geared up to mount a, you know, an anti-debt uh, kind of program. Uh, the other big factor that in all this is COVID. Okay, uh, because uh, when the COVID emergency happened in the spring of 2020, when the economy shut down, again, a huge dip in the in the GDP in the gross domestic product. You know, uh, spending on you know every the economy basically shut down, and both parties agreed at that time. You know, of course, Trump was still president, uh, but the Republicans and Democrats both supported a massive stimulus bill. I think it's 1.9 trillion to begin with. Um, Then they passed another one. Uh, They passed one just last winter. Uh, You know, uh, and everyone realized that if the economy wasn't going to collapse, you needed government to step in and spend. Uh, and, And not worry about debt. And so, and, and that experience did salvage the economy, okay? We, without it, uh, you and I probably wouldn't be talking here today. Adam. Right. The economy would have, would have basically collapsed. Uh, and so that spending also, I think, sort of uh, created more of an atmosphere, uh, not only in the parties, but I think in the, among the sort of the pundits uh, the journalists, the people who talk about these things, you know, suddenly were not as ready to scream, you know, uh, you know, debt. Um, so, th- so it sounds like uh, the uh, b- the both parties have sort of shifted their approach to this a little bit. Maybe the Democrats more than the Republicans. The Republicans are obviously more comfortable um, with. Uh, accruing deficits when they're in charge. Of course, they they were actually comfortable with doing that way back in um, the early 2000s when you know they had unified unified control of government under Bush as well. So, so maybe actually there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, maybe uh, it's the same partisan political games over the deficits and the debt um, over the you know over the past 20 years. Um, or is that not right? Yeah, but I, there's other developments. We probably should bring in at this point, and I don't want to go into the weeds on this one too much, but there's also a segment of the economics profession that has now become much more receptive to, to debt. Don't see it as a, as a problem for right. a country like the United States that issues debt in its own currency. Okay? And essentially, this is the so-called modern monetary theory movement, uh, MMT. Uh, Economist is a, a economist named Stephanie Kelton, and uh, you know, and their argument is that in fact uh, the only restraint on government spending is not, you know, this accounting tabulation of the size of the debt or or annual deficits, uh, but it's how government spending is affecting the real economy, and their claim is that. As long as this spending isn't promoting inflation, as long as there's not inflation in the economy, uh, the, the American government could borrow all the money at once. Okay. So let's talk about this in, in, inflation really quickly. And um, I guess we're probably running out of time. But 
because inflation is occurring. Um, and in fact, it's occurring at a slightly higher rate than what the Fed predicted several months ago. Um, they just revised their estimates for, for uh, the amount of inflation that we're going to see over the course of the year. It's, I think, a little over 4%. Uh, and of course, there's a big debate right now about what's causing inflation. Some people are saying it's just, you know, COVID-related bottlenecks. And if that's the case, things are going to go back to normal relatively shortly. Um, but other folks aren't so sure. Um, and so uh, given the uncertainty regarding inflation, uh, I guess my question is, um, is there more of a reason to be concerned about the federal government accruing larger and larger deficits right now? Well, the first thing I would say is that uh, the horse has left the barn. That is, the big spending has already occurred, the stimulus from, from COVID, the increase in debt. Uh, I should probably mention some figures here. Uh, the debt now stands around 21 trillion. Like We're getting close to uh, 100% of GDP. That's the best way of measuring debt. <clears throat> That's I thought we were already over that. Well, it depends on how you uh, okay. count, but but it, it around hundred percent of GDP. You know, back to the level it was. You know, World War II hasn't been that high as a as a percentage of GDP. You know, even after the the Great Recession, uh, the the debt to GDP ratio is only eighty percent, uh, and uh, and before that it was, you know, for most of the post war period. Uh, debt was usually somewhere between 30, around 30% of GDP. It wasn't, it wasn't up to these levels. <clears throat> and so we got all this big level and, you know, there had been a, would have been a time that said, well, if you do that, inflation should, would you'd have hyperinflation, all kinds of inflation. Yet there's some question as whether or not those inflationary pressures are there. However, in the last few months, there has been more inflation. And again, nobody knows exactly why. Uh, the Federal Reserve is sort of hedging its bets. It's saying, well, we don't think that underlying inflation is really there yet. And so you, you've gotten the, the, at least the Federal Reserve has said the most of this inflation is because of things like supply bottlenecks and just. Uh, the results of, of the economic downturn during COVID, and that those things will smooth themselves out. But who knows? You know, time will tell. Right, right. But, but if you look at <clears throat> the spending that, and now you have, and we should probably talk about the current moment, these two uh, big spending bills that are part of Biden's agenda. One is the infrastructure bill, it's already passed the Senate. It's $1.5 trillion, uh, mainly for what's called physical infrastructure, roads and bridges, railroads, airport improvements, and the like. And then this other, at the present, $3.5 billion proposal, uh, which hasn't, which. Uh, trillion. Which, <laughs> three, tr trillion, excuse me. <laughs> $3.5 trillion. Uh, proposal for uh, what the Democrats are calling social infrastructure, paying for child care <coughs> and the like. Excuse me. Now, uh, is this spending 
on top of what's already occurred going to you know, be the factor that spurs inflation? I mean, I have my doubts. First of all, in comparison to all the trillions we spent in the last year, this is pretty modest. The other thing to keep in mind is that both bills involves these, they sound big, these trillions, but it's spending spread out over to a 10-year period or even a bit beyond, okay? They're actually budgeted for 10 years, but the spending may go beyond. And on a year-to-year basis, it's not a huge amount of money. So if the whole 3.5 trillion uh, Democratic proposal were to pass, uh, that would be a spending of about 300 billion a year, which is which is uh, you know less than one percent of GDP. It's not a huge, and it's, it would be a small proportion of the total deficit of the federal government. You know, so so I don't think. I mean, I personally don't think that, that the argument that this spending itself is going to foment inflation. If there's a underlying inflation problem, it's going to be a carryover from uh, what's happened as a result of COVID. Uh, you know, I know I'm, I'm not an economist, so I really can't. Right, 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 right. The details about, you know, what, what, what might affect inflation, though, though as, a, as a sort of lay economist, I would say, you know, in, the, in, in past years, inflation has been down uh, largely because uh, global wages have been low. I mean, that there hasn't been a, a, a labor has been so weak that you haven't right. had a, a push on upward push on wages, which is which is maybe good for inflation, but it's it's bad for those people who don't make adequate incomes, right? Right. So right, right, right. You know, it, it might be that the world is changing uh, that. That shortages of labor, uh, restrictions on immigration, uh, might create upward pressure on wages, uh, which maybe could produce inflation. I don't know. I think well, it remains to be seen. I don't think you should assume that inflation is just around the corner uh, because of right. numbers. Uh, inflation may come down. Right. Uh, as you said, nobody really knows. Um, so I guess the one final question, and then we will, um, I guess we probably have to end. But so back in the Obama era, the era that you wrote about in your book, uh, you, we often heard talk about how America really needed to get its fiscal house in order. Right? Um, and the way that this was supposed to happen back then was, and you alluded to this earlier, through some sort of grand bargain in which both of the political parties would give up their sacred cows for the sake of the country's fiscal health. So Democrats would agree to big spending cuts and especially entitlement cuts, um, while Republicans would agree to tax increases, especially on the wealthy. And this never materialized in the Obama era, as, as you talked about. But here and there, you still hear people saying, you know, if we really wanted to get our fiscal house in order, this is what we would have to do. Um, so let's just say, hypothetically, that we have divided government again next year uh, because Republicans take control of Congress. Um, will there be talk of something like a grand bargain again uh, to stabilize the country's finances by you know, raising taxes on the, on the rich at the same time as uh, you know, 
we uh, cut spending on Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security? Or is that sort of idea sort of ancient history at this point? I think it's ancient history. The partisan divide, which was great in 2008, is even greater now. There, were, there, there are only a handful of so-called, I would call them centrist Democrats who, who, who talk about a concern with this. There are very few Republicans who make this a top priority. Uh, the Republican Party seems to see its electoral future tied up more in, in uh, stoking its base through discussion of cultural issues like uh, critical race theory or immigration, particularly immigration, uh, and earning votes that way rather than talking about uh, deficits and debt. Um, and I think the Democrats, uh, I, the, the, the Democrats are, are more likely, I think, in some ways to uh, allude to these issues because Democrats want to get votes from, uh, you know, suburban, suburban independents right. uh, who, who may have worries along this line. Uh, but even there, you know, there's not, I think it's, 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 it's misreading to think that there's a whole bunch of, you know, fiscal conservatives out there. There's this, there's this notion that there are a bunch of people out there who are uh, cultural liberals, but fiscal conservatives, right? And Democrats can get their votes uh, on cultural issues like abortion, et cetera, uh, as long as they are, don't go too far left on economic issues. And, you know, how big of a group that is, I, I just don't know. I skeptical nowadays. And then I think... Uh, I think both parties have carved out, you know, what they see as in their future. And I think that the Democrats have, have discovered that advocating universal child care, uh, advocating for free community college education, uh, advocating for uh, eliminating college debt, uh, all of those issues that involve government spending resonate with the voters. Uh, in fact, some of the criticisms that's, that that I've heard from pundits recently on this $3.5 trillion uh, package is that the Democrats have uh, argued too much over the, the size of it. Okay, there's been too much press coverage about right. the arguments about whether well, it should be $3.5 trillion or it's the substance of it, yeah. Uh, right, rather than the substance, which is extremely right. popular. You know, everything. No, no, that's. And even, that is definitely even, true. Even, I even, don't think most Americans would be able to say what's in this package. Right. right. And that's, know that it's really, really big. Yeah, and and that, that's a political problem for Democrats. That, and that's, a, that's partly perhaps a problem with democratic messaging. It's also the way the, the media tends to cover these things, right? Right. Uh, we saw this with the, with the Affordable Care Act, where uh, the media covered all the you know, back and forth, you know, who's winning, who's losing on the past of the Affordable Care Act. And never talked about what was in it, what, what it really was. Right. So right, people right, were right. very confused about that. And I think people don't understand really what's in this package. And uh, But in fact, each of the individual items are extremely popular. And so you don't have Republicans attacking those, uh, attacking the substance at all. Uh, they're simply, uh, you know, and the Democrats like Manchin and Cinema, who are reluctant to get behind this reconciliation, also aren't, you know, saying what, that they dislike, you know, particular parts of it. Uh, 
Right. So the mass politics of this is a whole other conversation. And I, I have a lot to say about that as well. But I think that we'll have to wait for another day. Um, so, uh, well, uh, Bill, thank you very much for agreeing to have the tables turned for this podcast. It was a lovely experience interviewing you and, and uh, getting a chance to share, share your copious knowledge about these topics with the world. Um, thanks again to Chris Judge of PC's Office of Marketing and Communications. And, and let me uh, add thanks to Isabella Fernandez, who's our student production assistant. Thank you, uh, Isabella, uh, for your help with this podcast. Um, and most of all, many thanks to you, our listeners. Um, Till next time, folks. Take care. <laughs>